Welcome to Line of Defense, a Womble Bond Dickinson white collar and investigation series, where leading white collar practitioners discuss hot topics and emerging trends in government investigations and enforcement. Hello, I'm Britt Biles, a partner in Womble Bond Dickinson's Washington, D.C. office. Joining me today is Luke Cass, also a partner in Womble Bond Dickinson's Washington, D.C. office. We're going to talk today about DOJ's efforts on corporate criminal enforcement, financial fraud, and a number of different enforcement areas. Luke, you spent over a decade at the Department of Justice. What is the current state of play when it comes to corporate criminal enforcement, in your view? What is the sense of the enforcement climate that's coming out of Maine justice? Well, Britt, last year there was a 10% increase in white-collar prosecutions. And based on all the tough talk coming out of DOJ, I believe we'll see that continue to increase throughout this administration. Describe what you mean by tough talk. What are you hearing? Well, last fall, Deputy Attorney General Monaco announced that companies should actively review their compliance programs to ensure that they adequately monitor for and remediate misconduct or else it's going to cost them down the line. She has added that in terms of resolutions, the department will review a company's whole criminal, civil, and regulatory record and not just a sliver of that record. And for clients cooperating with the government, they need to identify all individuals involved in the misconduct, not just those substantially involved, and produce all non-privileged information about those individuals' involvement. For clients negotiating resolutions, there's no default presumption against corporate monitors. That decision about a monitor will be made by the facts and circumstances of each case. And then earlier this month, both the Attorney General and the head of DOJ's criminal division reemphasized that the department's first priority in corporate criminal cases is to prosecute individuals who commit and profit from corporate malfeasance since these cases offer the quote-unquote best deterrent to corporate crime. So we're seeing a shift back to the guidance memo published by former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates that shifts the focus back on individuals rather than companies. And we're all just coming out of the pandemic that lasted a lot longer than any of us could have anticipated. I wonder, in light of these assertions by the department senior leadership, if corporate America is really ready for what seems like a rather abrupt change on, on some of these issues and for the scrutiny that DOJ appears to be bringing to bear on companies. Well, unfortunately, whether they're ready or not, it seems like the scrutiny is coming one way or the other. Um, There's also been some discussion by DOJ over the last year that they would not look kindly on companies that downsize their compliance programs during the pandemic. And I know DOJ has put out guidance on, on what an effective compliance program should look like and how it should perform. So companies at least have that starting point, but uh, the economic shocks of the pandemic coupled with increased corporate enforcement is putting a lot of pressure on companies to comply. What are the highlights of that guidance? That's a good point you brought up, Brent. Um, In June 2020, the DOJ issued a memo on corporate compliance as a guide for what is expected at a company's compliance program. The memo goes into a lot of detail, but it essentially boils down to three points. Uh, Is your compliance program well-designed? Is it applied in good faith? And does it actually work in practice? So there's this focus on design and operation. And aside from those overarching three points, isn't the culture of compliance another important yet unquantifiable aspect that's important to regulators? Yes, absolutely. The tone at the top is something that that regulators are always focused on. When I was at the SEC, that was an important consideration. I'm sure it was when you were at DOJ. In addition, a company that's a repeat offender has a history of violations. 
should not be expected to receive the same treatment considerations as a company who's had a lengthy history of good conduct and and maybe has one um, off incident. I believe we saw that in the Deputy Attorney General's remarks last fall in Miami, where she said a company's entire record, meaning civil regulatory, would be considered. I think there's a big focus on rooting out recidivism. Shifting gears a bit, what are some other hot-button enforcement areas that you're seeing DOJ focus on? Well, the Attorney General mentioned uh, three areas in his speech earlier in the month. The the first is on all forms of pandemic-related fraud, particularly as related to CARES Act programs like the Paycheck Protection Program, idle loans, and the Provider Relief Fund. I think those will certainly continue well beyond next year, especially since DOJ is now named a Director for COVID-19 Fraud Enforcement, who will lead the charge on these efforts. Uh, the Director, a gentleman named Kevin Chambers, comes out of the Deputy Attorney General's Office, which had been charged with leading the Task Force on Pandemic Fraud. He's a very experienced former federal prosecutor from the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office as well as a deputy associate attorney general. So the fact that this is coming out of the highest echelons of the department shows how significant of a priority uh, it remains. Absolutely. And, and the statements about uh, the role that Mr. Chambers will play seem focused on particular subsets of pandemic fraud related to certain types of offenders. Um, are there any other indications of how his work will be structured? I know from my experience that SBA and the White House inspectors general are, are active in the space, and we had a, a great conversation with the special inspector general for the pandemic recovery, Brian Miller, in our last episode of Line of Defense. So how will this be different, do you think? The, it's a good question. The, the fraud section of DOJ's criminal division took the lead at the outset of the pandemic with many of these cases. But one interesting reference in the announcement of uh, Mr. Chambers' appointment was to strike teams. So it may be something akin to what DOJ has done with healthcare strike forces, where they have a certain number of prosecutors in specific regions targeting pandemic fraud. Uh, that approach would certainly make sense in light of the amounts uh, at issue. The Wall Street Journal said pandemic-related fraud could total as high as $100 billion. We've seen some figures as high as $250 billion. And the attorney general also discussed budget increases to hire an additional 120 attorneys and 900 FBI agents. Uh, so there certainly is a, a gear up that's coming. Well, given the, the size of the pandemic relief programs and the CARES Act alone being more than $2 trillion, fraud operation of the size that you're describing certainly makes sense. One area that hasn't been mentioned in this context is, uh, is as much as the others is unemployment insurance. Uh, according to DOJ, up to a $860 billion in federal funds have been appropriated for unemployment insurance benefits through September of 2021, and there are reports of international organized criminal groups, identity thieves, even street gangs and prison inmates targeting these funds by using stolen identities to file for unemployment insurance benefits. So I'm sure that will be another aspect of the approach. Another thing that Attorney General Garland mentioned, and it appeared again in Mr. Chambers' announcement, was this notion of data analytics. What do they mean by that, and why is that important for these types of investigations, Britt? Well, data analytics has long been a tool that um, financial fraud investigators have used. At the SEC, for example, data analytics has long been a tool for rooting out insider trading and, and earnings smoothing and other types of misconduct that can only be discerned when you look at large data sets. So I think this is just a follow-on with that. Um, we now have the capability to process large amounts of data and identify anomalies that could be suggestive of fraud. I know 
that's something that Brian Miller had talked about when we spoke with him in our earlier episode. That's something that his team is using as well. And the good thing about data analytics is that it can be industry or region specific, and it allows for efficiency in identifying targets, expedites case development, and makes the overall program of enforcement more coherent and targeted, I think. And you mentioned a couple of different other areas. It's not just limited to, its use is not just limited to pandemic fraud. Oh, no, absolutely not. Most of the federal financial regulators that I'm aware of have been using data analytics for a long time. I know it began in, in healthcare fraud strike forces years ago, and, and it's certainly been in use at the SEC for quite a long time, as well as the CFTC. So I think the only new thing about the data analytics effort here is that it's expanding into pandemic fraud more than it already was. Interesting. What other areas of enforcement upticks are you seeing or expecting? In his speech, the Attorney General mentioned two other areas, antitrust and environmental. Uh, The antitrust division appears to be reinvigorated. Last year, the division brought 25 criminal cases against 29 individual defendants and 14 corporate defendants. And they had, according to the, the speech, 146 open grand jury investigations, which is the most in 30 years. The antitrust division is now uh, trying or preparing to try 18 indicted cases against 10 companies and 42 individuals, including eight current or former CEOs or or company presidents. And like the criminal division, the department's environment and natural resources division is prioritizing the investigation and prosecution of individuals that participate in corporate environmental malfeasance. Uh, They're preparing to try 11 indicted cases against 11 companies and 34 individuals including 14 company executives for a wide range of criminal environmental offenses. Other areas that we're likely to see more activity in is criminal tax, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, especially in Latin America, as well as market manipulation offenses, especially commodities fraud and and spoofing in particular. And Britt, maybe it'd be helpful to tell our audience, what, what is spoofing? Well, spoofing is most basic form is a, is a type of market manipulation. A trader will place an order to buy or sell a security or commodity with the intent to cancel the trade. The goal is to induce other traders to react to the trade and move the market, allowing the original trader to withdraw the spoofed order and make a new order on the other side to capitalize on the market's reaction that was set off by the original spoofed order. The Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 amended the Commodity Enforcement Act to make spoofing unlawful and define spoofing as bidding or offering with the intent to cancel the bid or offer before execution. DOJ has also brought a number of spoofing cases criminally with mixed results, but it appears to be a new area of priority, and DOJ has hired a number of dedicated commodities fraud prosecutors in recent months. But I don't want to get too far afield with this. I find this area fascinating, but aren't there legitimate and legal trading strategies that could often appear to look like spoofing? Absolutely. There are a number of them. Things like stop loss orders, fill or kill orders, partial fill orders, good till orders, ping orders, various things that can be used for legitimate purposes, but under some circumstances, they could appear to be spoofing. And really, the hard part of these spoofing cases, which is probably what's contributing to the mixed results that the government has seen, is that intent is difficult to prove in in many instances, especially beyond a reasonable doubt, which is what's required in a criminal case. Yeah, that is difficult. Yeah, that's a a good point. Hence the mixed results by the department on, on these in terms of market manipulation offenses, 
I mentioned that we will also continue to see insider trading cases filed on the on the criminal side. And recent cases include one in Houston, another in Boston. But the SEC had a case in Virginia a few months back on this idea of shadow trading. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a new area of focus at the SEC. And I think it's just a part of the SEC trying to expand um, its enforcement authority and, and stretch the boundaries of what the securities laws can capture. But that's definitely an area to watch and, and we'll hit on some of these securities issues in upcoming episodes, I'm sure. And in addition to Mr. Chambers' announcement, I saw that DOJ named the first director of the National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team. Uh, I know that's a topic that you're very well versed in. Can you, what can you tell us about that? Um, well, a very experienced prosecutor named Yu-Yang Choi has been named as the um, director of the National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team. She's coming out of the Deputy Attorney General's office and was an AUSA in the Southern District of New York. So she's had a lot of experience prosecuting cybercrime. And it seems that what DOJ's goal is, is to have Ms. Choi's office be responsible for rooting out the criminal misuse of cryptocurrencies and digital assets nationwide. There's indications that the office will focus on virtual currency exchanges, mixing tumbling services, infrastructure providers, and other entities that are enabling the misuse of crypto and related technologies to commit or facilitate criminal activity. The office also appears poised to set strategic priorities regarding digital asset technologies, identify areas for increased investigative and prosecutorial focus, and to lead the department's efforts uh, to coordinate with domestic and international law enforcement partners, regulatory agencies, and private industries to combat the criminal use of digital assets. Finally, it seems that the office is focused on enhancing the criminal division's existing efforts to provide support and training to federal, state, local, and international law enforcement partners to build capacity to aggressively investigate and prosecute serious crimes involving crypto around the world. So it appears the office will have a broad mandate to work across federal agencies to train, support, and innovate in the crypto regulatory space to stay ahead of future threats. And so many of the crypto threats are international. It'll be interesting to see how DOJ and, and others handle that jurisdictional challenge. Yes, and I, I think that is one thing that the government is focused on is coordinating across agencies. You see that in President Biden's new executive order on crypto and also working across borders with other jurisdictions. And Attorney General Garland has described a force multiplier for DOJ through partnerships at every level of government and around the world. So I, I think this is what he was referring to, this type of work that we're seeing coming out of this crypto enforcement office. Luke, any other areas that you wanted to mention as enforcement focuses? Just a few, and I alluded to them um, earlier, but I'll expand a little bit. Uh, first, there seems to be an uptick in criminal tax matters coming out of the department in a variety of different contexts. So I would look to that to continue. Um, I mentioned the FCPA earlier, particularly in Latin America. 2021 was a slow year for FCPA enforcement actions and resolutions. Out of the limited number of resolutions, two of those involved companies operating in South America, specifically in Brazil. Both were charged with alleged violations of the FCPA's anti-bribery books and records and internal control provisions. And both cases involved uh, the payment of bribes. And in the case of one matter, the parent company was accused of failing to promptly and adequately respond to warning signs of corruption or control failures in its subsidiary. In addition, recently disclosed FCPA investigations uh, allegedly involved companies in the Northern Triangle, which shows a narrowing focus on the region. 
Third, I, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of healthcare fraud, not only relating to opioid enforcement, but various types of testing like genetic testing and COVID-19 testing, which was unfortunately used for false billing during the pandemic, according to DOJ. And lastly, with the $1.2 trillion in capital flowing in from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, I believe we'll continue to see an increase in procurement fraud prosecutions uh, for the foreseeable future. Thanks, Luke. That's a lot of great information, and we've certainly thrown a lot out there today for our audience, and I'm sure we'll revisit some of these topics in individual episodes going forward. But for today, for our compliance professionals in the audience, what can they do to stay ahead of some of these regulatory curves? Right. I imagine all these enforcement areas may seem overwhelming to a, to a GC or a compliance officer that's listening to all this, but Fundamentally, I think DOJ wants to know whether companies are doing everything they can to ensure that when an individual is facing a singular ethical challenge, he or she has been informed, trained, and empowered to choose right over wrong. Uh, and that starts at the top. We talked about culture of compliance earlier. DOJ expects companies to examine whether leadership modeled poor ethical behavior for the workforce or fostered a climate in which subordinates committed wrongdoing with the intent to benefit the company or permitted weak controls that allowed the crimes of individuals to go undetected. Right. And as we've mentioned, we hear a lot about cultures of compliance, but I think at the end of the day, it comes down to what is your your good company story? What do you want to be able to affirmatively speak to a regulator about and show them that you've been doing to ensure compliance at a, a basic level within your company? And I think that comes down to determining whether a company has in place a system that can detect, remediate, and punish wrongdoing as appropriate, and then adapts to ensure that others don't make the same mistakes again in the future. Absolutely. So with that, thank you for listening to Line of Defense, a Womble Bond Dickinson white collar and investigation series. We'll be back soon for further discussions on hot topics and emerging trends of white collar and investigations. Thank you for listening to Line of Defense, a Womble Von Dickinson white collar and investigation series. Please join us for future episodes. And remember, we always stand ready to be your line of defense.